Hello and welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Welcome to another episode of Black, Brown, and Bilingue. I'm one of your hosts, Lisa Jacobson. And I am your other host, Maurice McDavid. Today's episode is a special event in partnership with Interfaith Youth Corps' Vaccine Awareness Campaign. We will be bringing you a series of bonus episodes in the coming weeks featuring different guests talking about vaccine hesitancy and how to have those tough conversations about it. So to kick off this special series, we are talking to Langston Ward, who is currently a program manager with Interfaith Youth Corps. He has also worked as a campaign field organizer and a high school history and English teacher. He is devoted to mobilizing communities to action through the power of education and the development of true empathy. Langston earned his BA in history and his master's at Harvard University. While in high school, he became the 2013 National Poetry Out Loud champion. Welcome to the show, Langston. Thank you. Pulling, pulling things out from a while ago there. Yep, with you out loud. Right on. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so, so Langston, let's, let's start this off um, uh, about, uh, by talking about this project that you're working on. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with Interfaith Youth Corps? Um, you know, what is it? How did you get uh, started with it? And, and then what are, you, are some of the responsibilities you have as a program manager? Yeah, certainly. Um, well, Interfaith Youth Corps has been engaged on vaccine outreach and vaccine awareness um, since towards the beginning of this year. Uh, traditionally, IFYC for short is an organization that works primarily with college students across the country uh, to increase awareness around religious diversity and civic engagement across religious communities, uh, as well with, with people who are from a secular background. Um, so in this last couple of months as the entire world has devoted its attention to addressing COVID, addressing the vaccine, IFYC has taken its place and kind of done a landscape view of what are all the resources we have, what are our assets as an organization, and what can we do in this moment? And so when doing that, we looked at a large pool of universities that we had access to, as well as the students in them. And we asked ourselves, how can we activate those students? So since then, there's been a campus program that's been launched, uh, led in coordination with faculty and staff, where we have over 1,400 college students who are engaged on increasing awareness around the vaccine, uh, devoted to different projects, including setting up vaccine clinics, uh, engaging in a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations. And IFYC, we have the opportunity to provide some education to equip those students with the ability to have deep conversations with people, primarily focusing on deep listening and understanding where people are coming from. Uh, on my side of programming, I work primarily with our alumni. So a lot of folks who have been students at one point and engaged with IFYC's materials and done leadership institutes with us, uh, but they're now out in the world 
working as professionals, uh, as pastors, imams, doctors, community organizers, every industry you can imagine. Um, we have about 31 alumni currently engaged in projects focused on setting up vaccine clinics, having one-on-one -on -one conversations with people in their community, uh, making the scientific information of the vaccine more accessible, and supporting healthcare workers who have been doing this since day one and who are stretched thin and who need some mental resources, some mental health assistance. So in this work, we've got our alumni, we've got college students, uh, and we're also just trying to highlight the stories uh, from the ground as much as we can, both from students and alumni, uh, and really putting a spotlight on the opportunity that religious communities offer up to public health officials and to the government as partners in this work so that we can begin to communicate a little bit more openly and identify people who are trusted in their community to deliver information that people might otherwise not listen to. I love that. Um, I know that when Maurice and I have discussed um, vaccine hesitancy, at least for the, for the Brown community, I know that um, with like Catholicism, there is that history of, of hesitancy. And so I think that's great. Can you speak at all to like how, how many states perhaps you're covering? Do you have like a range? Are you like coast to coast or? We are coast to coast. Wow. Um, I would say we're in over 40 states. Um, I think I know we're not in Alaska, uh, <laughs> but we could be soon. Uh, but uh, between all the universities that we have access to, um, and that are in our network, we're, we're covering coast to coast. That's incredible. And also, I think the difference in the kinds of communities is especially important as well. Mm -hmm. um, we certainly have cities and urban communities, suburban communities, but uh, the focus on rural communities especially is something that I think uh, we're, beginning to, we're beginning to think more intentionally about. Um, and fortunately, through the alumni, we have one alumni in particular who's done a lot of great work in Clarendon County, South Carolina, mm -hmm. uh, in a rural community there where 30,000 people have been living a majority black community. Um, oftentimes black rural communities are left out of the picture in all conversations. Um, and he's just been doing great work there as a, as a pastor. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to maybe jump in on, on that thought a, a little bit more um, before we move ahead. Um, this idea of it being interfaith, right? Um, I, I serve in our community as, uh, as an assistant pastor and youth pastor. Uh, myself, um, so I love this idea of of, of using um, that faith system as a platform to get out information. Um, can you you know can you explain a little bit more what what does that look like uh, again across faiths uh, of of using that pastor or mom to communicate that information? Yeah, I think I can give us an example that might be illustrative. Kenji. Kiramitsu and Andy Kirshner are two alumni in IFYC's alumni network. Uh, they both live in Chicago. They both uh, are engaged in religious communities in the Hyde Park area, uh, Andy at um, a synagogue and Kenji at his church. And their two communities have been engaged historically with one another. They uh, helped to create a garden together. Um, they'll uh, work together on uh, different projects. Uh, but they, as alumni, saw an opportunity uh, when they noticed, well, we have two communities here 
that both have people interested in helping get folks vaccinated in our community. So we can do two different things separately, one where essentially right across the street from one another, or we can pool our resources and be more effective in the process. So we can have volunteers drawn from both of our communities. And hey, uh, Kenji, your church already has a food bank where folks come in twice a week to get food. And you know what? It's probably pretty likely that those are the kinds of folks that need to get vaccinated and that might not have easy access to the vaccine. So how about we set that up as the place we're going to offer the vaccine? And we can begin to spread the word through both of our communities and have volunteers meet up there so that we can engage in conversation with people that are in line waiting to get their food for the week. So I think that's an example of how interfaith can work at its best, where two communities who have an interest or three communities, different communities who have a lot of similar ideals and similar goals, um, but different belief systems that can be recognized as different. They can work together still because it is it's an alignment with their underlying mission uh, in a lot of times. And I think the, the vaccine has offered a particular window into the opportunity that interfaith cooperation can give us. Yeah, that's 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 beautiful. That's beautiful. I, I think about it. I think, like you said, um, I appreciate you acknowledging, right? Yeah, different beliefs, right? But similar underlying principles, uh, loving people wanting to serve people. And so I appreciate that. I, I want to take just a moment here and just let our listeners know um, that uh, this is kind of a, a, a setup for us. Uh, we're, we're very excited um, uh, through our work with Langston. We've had the opportunity actually um, to uh, speak with who will be our next guest, and that will be Representative Jim Clyburn, uh, who is the majority whip um, for uh, he, he's a representative for the South Carolina District 6. Um, so, again, you're going to want to stay uh, in tune with Black Run and Bilingue. Um, after this episode, uh, you'll get a chance to hear that as well. I just want to say thank you for making me not follow him. I appreciate that. <laughs> Yes, and we're also looking forward to having um, Black and Latino doctors and medical experts so that they can also provide some of that scientific um, information that, unfortunately, um, that rhetoric, the political rhetoric, um, has moved away from. And so we want to bring that back to the forefront. Um, so Maurice and I actually operate as... Um, Building principals. We are both uh, elementary school principals in West Chicago, District 33. <laughs> um, so we also are very intrigued by the fact that you started in education. Um, was your journey to Harvard a set path or was it more of a winding journey? Can you speak to that? And then um, what were some of the major events or people who helped you get there? Yeah, I uh, my career first job out of college was uh, as a high school teacher in Hayward, California. I uh, started off teaching English, uh, and then second year added in American history as well. Um, getting there was I don't know if there's any straight lines in, the, in this journey, but it was it wasn't a straight line for me for sure. Um, I actually entered Harvard in 2013. Yeah, 2013 as a as a football recruit. So I was intent on playing college football my entire high school career uh, and had good grades and everything. I think I got a B, 
my freshman year in a math class of high school and I joked to myself, well, I'm never, I guess I'm never going to Harvard. And, and it was something that I just said to myself and I had no intention of going to Harvard my entire life. Um, but then I got a call my senior year and the opportunity presented itself. Uh, and I was looking at some other schools uh, in the Pac-12 and Big Ten. And uh, at one point, a coach, a recruit for one of these other schools uh, was knew I was interested in Harvard. And he asked me, don't you want to play real college football? And at that point, I knew I needed to go to Harvard because <laughs> my values were just, were, they, they were different from that. So I had a great experience there. Um, obviously playing football and being a student as well uh, and balancing that student athlete uh, life took some time. It was difficult at first for me. Uh, I was someone coming out of uh, a good public school in Spokane, Washington, um, but I was not necessarily ready to encounter the level of uh, just education that many of my peers had when they arrived at Harvard coming out of uh, institutions like Phillips Exeter, um, prep schools that uh, students were reading, you know, Russian literature when they were freshmen in high school. Um, that would have been incredible if I were able to do that in high school. But I, I was very blessed to have the education I did in high school. Uh, and so by the time I did get there, I realized I had a little bit of catch up to do. I had to put my head down a little bit. Uh, and that took some time. But by the time I uh, got to the end of my experience there. It was a it was a wonderful experience. I learned a lot about class straight up, just how that functions in the world in a way that I didn't understand before uh, and didn't know what I wanted to do after college when I started, didn't know what I wanted to do when my senior year started and quickly realized that teaching was going to be an opportunity for me to have an immediate impact. Uh, so there's a program called Harvard Teacher Fellows that I... Uh, began to participate in my senior spring. So I was uh, enrolled as an undergrad for my last semester and also began enrollment at the Graduate School of Education at Harvard um, through the Harvard Teacher Fellows Program, which was in its second year at its time, at the time. Uh, and, and essentially it was offering uh, teachers a pathway into the classroom. There's a Harvard graduates pathway into the classroom that would uh, give them exposure to teaching before they landed in an actual job. Uh, so we were able to have a lot of coaching over the summer before we went off into our schools uh, by teaching summer school in Chelsea, Massachusetts, uh, taking classes, analyzing video. Uh, so there was a coaching layer that I really appreciated because I, I know now more than I did then how hard it is to be a teacher and how hard it is to be a first year teacher. Uh, and I didn't I knew I wasn't going to be great because that's just the way it is when you're starting. But I wanted to have as much support as I could and to be as good as I could be as a first year teacher. Um, and this program and the incredible uh, people who ran it, uh, including uh, just the rest of the cohort, the students who were there as learners alongside me, uh, really made the experience uh, worthwhile in the right in the right decision. So I started teaching. Uh, after that summer, after I graduated, moved to California, I was there for two years um, before deciding to transition into working on on campaigns. Uh, but those two years were uh, transformative for me, and I was actually able to go back for uh, my some of my students' graduation. Thank 
goodness, because of the vaccine. And <laughs> that's one of those things, just <laughs> another plug for the vaccine, folks, <laughs> you know, get to see people you love again. Uh, so I got to go and see them graduate uh, this year. And that was just uh, very emotional in a, in a wonderful way. So those two years were an incredible time in my life. Yeah, I want to I want to um, I want to point out, first off, um, that's incredible that you got a chance to play college football. Um, I'm a football guy myself. Um, I knew that was coming. I knew <laughs> I was waiting for the connections. <laughs> played a little D3 football, you know, so right. basically, basically we played at the same level, you know. No. <laughs> All right. So, no, but I, I do always think about uh, Harvard football because I, I watch SportsCenter on Snapchat mm -hmm. and Trevor Scales. Is a oh, yeah. football guy. I think, yeah, you would have just missed him. I think he graduated in like 2012. Mm -hmm. um, he was there during my recruiting visit, and he was, you know, I'll tell you, he, he there's a reason he's on ESPN. <laughs> he knew how yeah. to sell the place. He's a good presenter. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah. So, so you know, I'm I'm thinking about and you mentioned um, and talking about Harvard, um, right? I think we all kind of have this public image of Harvard or or like this pop culture image of Harvard, um, you mentioned that you learned a lot about class uh, while you were there. Um, I wonder, uh, you know, can can you talk some more about that and then how perhaps that has been applied in this campaign, right, for, for vaccination? Because we know that the vaccination rates have differed not only by biracial and ethnic groups, but also depending on class and some of those things. Um, so have you been able to apply some of that that you've learned as well? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think my education on class at Harvard began on my first day when I moved in. Uh, and I saw someone moving into their dorm and unpacking a Bugatti. And wow. I, <laughs> yes, I was like, oh, I am at a, I'm at a place right now. This is, this is a unique <laughs> place. As, um, as, as you pulled up on your bike, Langston, like, all right, bro. <laughs> And I don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, cast any illusions. I, I don't come from a background where I wanted for anything. Um, I had a, a family that was, I, I was provided everything I could ever want as a kid. Um, and uh, I think what I began to learn was that there are levels to this. There are levels to this and uh, without casting and I could, see that without also adding in uh, a more moralist layer to that, um, which I think before going, I was ready to do that. Uh, I, I was ready to kind of lay out judgment left and right, because um, at the time we were coming out of, I was personally coming out of a time where my house in New York, where I kind of considered my childhood home to be, uh, was taken away because of foreclosure during the housing crisis. Uh, my father had passed away and it was just kind of one thing after another hit. Uh, we lost that house. We moved to Spokane, Washington. Um, I was watching a lot of documentaries about the financial collapse. So I was angry with, I was angry with rich people <laughs> and I didn't really know a lot of really, really rich people, but I was, I wasn't happy. Um, so I was ready to be that person who was just not liking people. Um, but that, was immediately complicated as well. Uh, once you actually get to know people and talk to people and you learn about the layers that people have as individuals, um, that kind of quick snap judgment 
that kind of stuff fades away um, if if you really keep your eyes open. Uh, and if you do that, you can learn a lot more as well. Uh, so I think uh, partly it was kind of reflecting on my own background and some of the privileges that I had because uh, Harvard isn't just rich people. There are people from everywhere. Uh, one of my best friends at Harvard, he was homeless at one point uh, and he was an orphan as a child. And he wasn't the only one with that kind of story who had made it there. So you, you get this incredible mix of people from the very highest, highest rung of society. Uh, oftentimes who you won't even know that that's where they're from, uh, which is a testament, I think, to their character. Uh, and then you also get people uh, like my best friend and like me all in one place. And everybody's smart. Everybody's interesting. Everybody has stories. So it's there's no place like it uh, to learn. And I this is very cliche, but I definitely did a lot more learning just by talking to people and getting to know people than I did in the classroom. Uh, which probably should have been a little, <laughs> the balance could have little bit, been a little better. But I, I did a lot of learning in both places. But by interacting with people and really getting to know people, um, I realized the layers of privilege that people have um, and the layers of complexities that people can have. Uh, and when it comes to the vaccine and looking out now on the society that we're looking at, where, um, yes, we've got differences between race and ethnicity on who wants to get it, location and geography and who wants to get it, and socioeconomic uh, conditions on who wants to get it and who can get it. Um, I think as far as the differences in class between us, it, it kind of can go back to the beginning of when the vaccine was released here in Chicago. And, you know, you've got stories of people driving in from the suburbs to get the vaccine. Um, and, you know, these are people who want to be protected. They're scared. Uh, and there are folks who don't have cars to get to those places that live right next to the clinics. Um, so we immediately saw this disparity in access from the beginning, which was so predictable in a, in a terrible way. Uh, and we're still seeing those impacts now. Um, people notice that, you know, people notice that they feel that they internalize uh, people coming in and in their minds, jumping the line. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of healing <laughs> and, uh, beyond just the vaccine that we have to do as a society. Um, but right now, uh, I'm pleased to see that, you know, vaccines are much more widely accessible. And so now the question is, you know, what is that thing? What does that hold up for you? Uh, and I think we need to continue to have some grace and some patience with people because, people are just going to become more uh, closed off to the idea of getting the vaccine if we start to make fun of them. Uh, if, you know, people on uh, the news who make millions of dollars a year uh, want to continue to disparage people who don't have close to that amount of money and will never come close to making it for their entire lives. Um, and that's just not going to help anybody. How do you feel about the incentives? Like, do you think they will work or have you, do you have any experience with any of that? I don't have any experience with uh, uh, giving out tickets for, for vaccine. I asked myself, man, why did I get it so early? I could have got some free tickets. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> this this is something that I have been open and listening to people about. Um, one of our alumni 
was telling me, uh, and initially my reaction to it was, this is a great idea. I thought it was a great idea. Uh, and then that was immediately complicated through a conversation with an alumni who uh, mentioned the fact that, yeah, we've got these incentives now. And now I'm worried that no one's going to want to get it without it because we've run out of stuff to give away. Mm-hmm. And now I'm worried that people are going to say, well, what do I get for this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't have anything else to give. Mm-hmm. So like all things vaccine and COVID related, there's always another layer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but That's I, a point. Yeah. And, but, you know, in the places that really need uh, to get these numbers up and that are really lagging, I understand the, uh, the thought that, you know, whatever it takes, what, what can we throw at the wall? What can we try here? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think in an ideal world, there would be incentives for people and there would be incentives for everybody uh, if the resources were, were dedicated towards that. Um, I think in a way, this food bank idea that uh, Kenji and Andy had, uh, there was already, a, a, there wasn't an incentive in the way that you come here, you get your food, but lining things up next to other resources that people have as a part of their lives, mm-hmm. getting into those places where people are moving, mm-hmm. their daily lives have this incorporated into it. How can we put information or put the shots there so that, you know, there's a back to school event this month, uh, or excuse me, next month in August mm-hmm. that one of our alumni is going to try to get shots to. So like people are going to show up. They don't expect to see the vaccine there. Uh, but when it's right there, that's a new decision. It's not hypothetical anymore. You're not online reading an article that your auntie shared that's spreading misinformation. You've got the vaccine right there and you can talk to somebody about it and you can make a decision in the moment. So I think more and more of those kinds of opportunities need to be taken advantage of where people are in a situation where they can make a decision and it's easy, making it less and less friction for people to get the shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we hosted some vaccine clinics. I, you've seen schools, I think, across the nation, and they were really, really successful. Um, so Maurice and I were excited to be able to do that with our school district. Langston, it, it is our uh, tradition here at Black, Brown, and Bilingue to um, ask our guests to leave um leave a, a final word. If there was one thing that you wanted our listeners to walk away with, what would it be? And since you were the 2013 uh, 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 poetry champ, right? If you wanted to do it in a poem, you could. I'm not going to require that though, but we just wanted to throw that back out there one more time so you didn't know, or you didn't think we were sleeping on your poetry skills, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, the last word, you know, I have been reflecting on this, um, the mission of IFYC a lot more recently. Um, I'm going to be stepping away from my role at IFYC at the end of this week um, and going to law school. So taking a, a different journey, going down a different path. Um, so I've been thinking about what are the things that I'm going to take away from this experience. Um, and I think I'm sorry, it's not, it's probably not going to connect to a poem. I'm trying to figure out how I could make it. (laughs) (laughs) But there's this, uh, I think, undergirding philosophy um, derived from well-founded research, which is always the IFYC thing. And that is that uh, diversity is a fact. Diversity is a fact. What we do with that fact is 
up to us. I think in the wake of uh, last summer and all the conversations and the movements sprung out, out of those events um, and those tragedies, there's been a renewed focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace and, and up and down our society. And I hope that um, as I continue to move through the world, I can recognize like, yeah, diversity exists, but that doesn't mean anything unless we make it count. And oftentimes, if we don't really acknowledge that, things get worse. Things get worse. Um, so we've got a lot of questions to answer. Uh, and I've been appreciative of being at IFYC because it adds in this layer of religious and worldview identity that I think is often disregarded in the broader conversations of diversity. Because if you look at the numbers, uh, people of color on the whole are more religiously devoted than, uh, than white folks in this country. So if, if we're going to say we're not going to pay attention to that, we're not going to pay attention to what your belief system is. Uh, are we really appreciating you for the full person that you are? Uh, are we really incorporating you and including you in our society if we don't want to include an understanding, at least, of what you believe? So diversity is a fact. That's my, my last thing. I'd say what we do with it is up to us. Perfectly stated. Thank you so, so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Um, and good luck to you in law school. Um, and there's no doubt in our minds that you will do great things. So for Black, Brown, and Bilingue, I'm Lisette Jacobson. I'm Maurice McDavid. Muchas gracias for tuning in. Adios. Mm -hmm.